0: The God of the Old Testament is a God of anger, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. In the Old Testament, it was all about rigid rule-keeping and laws, but in the New Testament, it's all about love and relationship. I wonder if you've ever heard that contrast made. Law in the Old Testament and love in the New. Perhaps you've heard that contrast made from others. Perhaps you've thought it yourself, but it's worth asking, is that contrast a true one? Today we're picking up in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the big books of law in the Old Testament, and it's a great place to put that contrast theory to the test. In the first two weeks of semester, we covered chapters one to four of Deuteronomy, and today we're looking at chapter five, where we see the ten commandments that Caleb just read out for us. Without doubt, the most famous list of rules and laws in the Bible. And even from an initial read, it's hard to escape the fact that in this chapter, there's a real focus on law. If you've got a Bible in front of you, it would be helpful to have it there open. Have a look at Jeremy 5 verse 1, how our passage today begins. It says, Moses summoned all Israel and said, hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. So there you go, verse 1, and we're straight into decrees and laws. And when you read that in isolation, it's easy to read that and just think, rules, rules, rules. Cold, rigid law-keeping rather than love. But let me suggest that to do so would be our mistake. Because rather than reading these rules in isolation, When we read them in the context of Deuteronomy as a whole, it becomes clear that the law is actually all about love. But don't take my word for it. Let's see if you can see it for yourself. And to help us see this, we're going to do a little exercise. So if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, or look over your friend's shoulder because you're going to need to see it there. Have a look. Deuteronomy 5. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, so you really do need a Bible this time. Verses 6 to 21. That's the Ten Commandments. Doesn't order them one, two, three, four. The little numbers seven. If you look at verse seven, uh, that's actually the first commandment. That's just saying what verse it is. It says, "You shall have no other gods before me." Verse seven. Uh, verses eight to ten, you'll see there in front of you is the second commandment: "Don't make idols." If you jump forward, verse seventeen: "You shall not murder." That's number six. You get the idea. So, from verses twenty six to twenty one, you've got the ten commandments. Now, with the person next to you, take a minute and discuss which commandment do you think. Is the greatest or the most important? Take a minute with the person next to you, see what you come up with. All right, I'll interrupt you there. Um, okay, shout any ideas that you've got. Which command do you think might be the most important or the greatest? Don't be shy. No gods, number one, that seems a good candidate. Yep, any other ideas people come up with? Yep, don't steal, I heard Caleb said, good idea. <laughs> Any others? Is there any other contenders, or do most people think maybe Commandment is number this a one? Trick question, ben? It absolutely is. <laughs> now you might think, Ben, why are you giving us a trick question? Uh, because it's important for us to see that the most, the greatest commandment is not in Deuteronomy five; it's actually in, in Deuteronomy six, and that's actually quite significant. <laughs> and we're going to see that that's actually going to help us. You said, why are you giving us a trick question, Ben? Because understanding that is key to understanding this. So. Uh, If you flip over to Deuteronomy 6, it's going to uh, help you. But we're going to go straight to the New Testament, Matthew 22. uh, Because Jesus asked that exact question. Have a look at how he responds. This is Matthew 22. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, that's talking about the Old Testament law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God, from Deuteronomy 6, 4, which you can probably see in your Bibles there. The second greatest command is love your neighbor, which uh, is, it, is, is talking about not just the person who lives next in your street, but your fellow person. So love God and love people, From, Deuteron- from that's from Leviticus nineteen eighteen. So those are the first two commandments. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 40. He's not just saying that these two happen to be the most important in a long list. No, it's much deeper than that. Jesus is saying that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. These two commands, love God and love people, are like two coat hangers. And every other command, everything else in the Old Testament law and the prophets, hangs off one of these two. And be clear, Jesus is not adding anything new here. You might say, well, yeah, that's Jesus, that's New Testament, of course it's about love. But no, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's not changing the Old Testament law, is he? He's just showing the way that it's rightly to be understood in its own context. Jesus is saying it's in there all along. The Old Testament law is and always was all about love. And when you come back to the Ten Commandments, you can see that in action. So let's keep Jesus' two coat hangers up there. And now notice how each of the Ten Commandments hangs off and expands one of these two underlying commands. So have a look in your Bibles with me at Deuteronomy 5 verse seven. The first commandment, what does it say? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's about an exclusive devotion to God in a loving relationship with Him alone. You know, it's a bit like a marriage. You know, if my wife said to me, Ben, you shall have no other women beside me. You wouldn't say, wow, talk about cold, rigid law keeping. (laughs) No, you'd say that's how it should be. That's what a relationship of loving faithfulness looks like. And that's exactly the way it is with the first commandment. God has brought Israel into a loving relationship, a covenant of love, like a marriage. So at least for this first commandment, you can see that the law is not in conflict with love. It's actually in service of love, isn't it? It's helping them to love God and know what that looks like. It's the same with the second commandment. Have a look at verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an image of any created thing, an idol to represent God and bow down to it. Now, this second commandment is less about who we worship, God and not others, and more about how we worship that one true God. God's telling his people not to make an idol and bow down to it as if that represented who he is. And this is exactly what Israel did when they made the golden calf back in Exodus 32. At that point, it's not, the problem was not that they were worshipping other gods. It's that they were worshipping the true God of Israel in a wrong way. By creating a golden statue of a cow and saying, this is the image of the God who saved us out of Egypt. Bowing down to a golden cow as if that represented who God really was. And you might think, well, well, why is that such a big deal? Like, isn't it more important that they were worshipping the true God and that their their heart's in the right place, even if they happen to get the outward wrong a little bit? Well, to take the marriage example again, if you asked me about my wife and I said, well, her name is Alex and, and here's a picture of her, and I show you a picture of this cow, you can imagine that she wouldn't be too happy about that. <laughs> to falsely represent her is to fail to love her. And the same is true of God, but on a far more serious level, way more serious. To falsely represent God is to fail to love him. It misrepresents his majesty and glory and beauty, which are far beyond anything that can be captured by some statue, by the shiniest gold, platinum, whatever. All of that will always sell short the beauty and majesty of God. It falsely represents him. So once again, you can see the second commandment is actually about helping Israel to know what it looks like in practice to love God. The law is not in conflict with love. No, not at all. The law is actually in service of love. The same is true of the third and fourth commandments. We don't have time to go through them in as much detail at the moment, but you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It's about holding God's name in honor and not treating it flippantly or lightly. The fourth commandment is the Sabbath, having a day that's set apart to rest. So, those first four all hang under love God. And then the next six hang under love people. Have a look how this plays out. Um, Have a look at verse 16 where you've got the fifth commandment. It says, Honour your father and mother. Now, notice that already it's moved from a primarily vertical relationship about directly loving God to a horizontal relationship of love of other people. In this case, the particular circumstance of how you love the people who are your parents. In verse 17 is the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, and that you get a snappy short uh, a bunch of short and sharp commands. You shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. Notice that these are all about loving other people. It's about fleshing out in practice what it means to love. Not just nice platitudes or have nice feelings towards others, but actually showing the Israelites what does that mean concretely to love. So God doesn't just say love people. If God just said love God, love people, that's, the, that's it, they wouldn't actually know what that looks like. Now it's worth saying, of course, that uh, obviously these, these overlap and point to and, and affect each other. Rightly loving God and holding at him in his right place actually helps us to love other people. And once we see that people are made in God's image, actually out of honour for God, it'll make us want to love other people. So it's not that the two are completely disconnected. But Jesus is saying that all the law and the prophets hang off these two commands. Now for this, these ones on the right in particular, on love people. Romans 13 is a really helpful passage in the New Testament that unpacks how the intent behind these laws is love. And again, it's not adding new stuff in the New Testament. It's showing how the Old Testament was always meant to be understood. Have a look, Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. It says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. So the goal of all these commands is love. If you love others and put them before yourself then you'll be fulfilling what the law was always calling God's people to, even in the Old Testament. Notice as well, uh, while commandments like you shall not murder um, are about an action, and a lot of them are, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, those are all actions, outward things that you do. Commandments like number 10 are actually about what goes on in the heart. I think about it, coveting. You might be wondering, what on earth does it mean to covet? To covet is simply to envy what rightly belongs to another. To envy what rightly belongs to someone else and want it for yourself. Now, here's the thing. You can take someone to court for murder and present your evidence. Can you take someone to court for coveting? What what evidence would you provide? There's no outward evidence. It might lead you to steal or commit adultery and murder, to... to, to want what is not yours but that itself is an attitude of the heart so what that should show us is that even in the old testament even in the ten commandments god wasn't just concerned about external obedience was he not just rigid cold law keeping god was always concerned about people's hearts and in fact, as Jesus points out in Matthew 5, even the commandments about murder and adultery were also about the heart. It's not just the external action of murder that's wrong, but it's the hateful heart that gives birth to that action. It's not just the external action of adultery and stealing that's wrong, but the lust or greed in the heart that gives birth to those actions. That's not a new thing in the New Testament. Like in the Old Testament, God was like, oh yeah, beat up your neighbour, but as long as you don't like stab him in the stomach, then you're totally fine. No, God always cared about that. That's why he said, love your neighbour as yourself. Even in the Old Testament, God is always concerned about not just external obedience, but about the heart. So you can see, can't you, that it's not law versus love. It's actually law in service of love. So it would actually be theologically accurate to call the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law A love manual. Uh, That would be weird, so let's not call it that. I I submitted this to be our kind of sermon series graphic for uh, Jeremy. I can't imagine why it was was thrown back. Maybe my art skills, maybe it was the Comic Sans, I don't know. (laughs) It's really weird, but theologically, it's actually true. The law is unpacking in practice what it really looks like to love. To love God and to love people in the context of ancient Israelite society. So is the law all about rigid rule keeping? The Old Testament law is all about that, but the New Testament's all about love and relationships? Well, no, we've seen that that's not the case, is it? it it's a false dichotomy. It, it's, it represents a misunderstanding of the Old Testament laws and what they were actually about. And it's a misunderstanding, therefore, of who God is and his nature. Because the law of love reflects a God of love. And this is actually really important for understanding what the law really is. So let's unpack this together. You see, God has existed for all eternity past in this community of love within the persons of the Trinity. Perfect love, perfect self-giving. And then in the Old Testament, a specific time in human history, God gave the law to a group of people called Israel. And this law, including what we find here in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, is is an application, one application of God's perfect moral character to an imperfect group of people in an imperfect fallen world. The law reflects his character, his love, his justice and so on. It reflects his character and shows him what it looks like to live lives of love, love God, love people, But it does so recognising that they live in a world that is fallen. And so you'll find that the law is full of what you might call moral idealism. Ideals of how we ought to live in perfect self-giving. The best case scenario of what we should strive for. Love your neighbour as yourself. But it's also full of moral realism. Dealing with the reality of sinful life. And how we fail to live in light of God's perfect love. And so not everything that you find in the law is going to represent God's perfect ideal. That's why there are commands around, what do you do when someone murders? It's not just saying, yeah, it's great, murder. He's saying, in your fallen world, when this happens, what, how are you going to respond? God regulates things like divorce. God regulates things like slavery. Because he knows that these people aren't living in a vacuum. He's giving them a law that helps them live in light of his character in a sinful fallen world. That's something we're going to unpack further in the coming weeks. But now, because Israel was, uh, this law was for Israel in particular, the Israelites were under the law. They were bound by the terms of the marriage vows, if you will. So that's all well and good. But the problem is, Israel utterly failed to keep God's law. I don't just mean a few bad decisions here and there, the law actually had provisions and sacrifices for those things. No, the Israelites didn't just make a few little mistakes. They utterly turned their back on God and screwed up big time. They cheated on him time and time again, running after other gods. And you might ask, why? Why did they fail? Why didn't they keep the law? Is it because people back then weren't as enlightened as we are today in the 21st century? Well, no, we might like to flatter ourselves by thinking that. The reality is they fail because they like us have the problem of sin in our hearts god in his very nature and core of his being is love he's perfectly others-centered putting others before himself but we in our sinful nature are self-centered and we know this to be true we find some good within our hearts some desires to do good But even in the good things we do, we've so often got selfish motives in it. I certainly find that in my own heart. Our our hearts are curved in on themselves. And so instead of love God and love people, we love self. And we put ourselves before God and others. And that's really the essence of sin. To put ourselves before God and others. And so because they've got hearts like us, the Israelites failed to perfectly love God and others. And that is why Jesus came. Galatians 4 puts it this way When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, note that phrase, to redeem, which means to purchase, to save, to rescue, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship, to be brought into his family. So Jesus was born under the law, he was an Israelite. He was bound by those marriage vows. But then Jesus did what no other Israelite had done. He fulfilled the law. He perfectly loved God and perfectly loved others. In fact, he didn't just love his neighbour as himself, which the law called him to, that great moral ideal. He loved others above himself, even giving up his own good and his own life on the cross to save others. Jesus went above and beyond Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And so what does that mean for Christians today? Well, Jesus kept the law when we couldn't. He lived the perfect life of love that we fail to live. Uh, For those of us who aren't Israelites, which I'm guessing is most of us, we were never under the, the marriage vows to begin with. But Jesus, who was, has fulfilled them. And so, but even though he's the one person who did fulfill them, he took on in himself the penalty of our selfishness and our law breaking. He died in our place on the cross. And then for all who trust in him, he applies his righteousness. That means his his perfect life of love and fulfillment of the law. He gives that to us when we trust in him so that we can be declared right in God's sight and become his children. Which means that for Christians today, the law is no longer binding on God's people. The law, including the Ten Commandments, they're not an exception to this. The law has been fulfilled. As Christians today, we are not under the law. This is how Galatians 3 puts it, verses 23 to 25. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law, again, this is the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, by trusting him. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So as Christians today, indeed anyone who would put their faith in Jesus, we are saved by him and what he's done for us. And we are no longer under the law. But that raises a big question, doesn't it? So if we're no longer under the law, what do we do with the law now? If it's not binding on us as law, should we just get rid of it, ignore it, burn it? Well, no, Jesus in Matthew 5 says that he came to fulfill the law, yes, but he also said that he did not come to abolish it. So even though it's been fulfilled, it still has enduring relevance for God's people. Because even though it doesn't apply to us as law, it's still a window into God's perfect character and how we are to imitate him in our lives today. So if the law is a mirror, a mirror, in, sorry, not a mirror. Uh, it is a mirror as well, but we'll actually look at that in coming weeks. That's one, another one of its functions for believers today. But one of its functions is a window A window into God's character. And one way to put that into practice would be to use these three steps whenever you see an Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments, but it goes beyond it as well. First step, understand the commandment in its original context for Israel. What does it mean? What's it saying? For them, then? Second step, discern what principles it reveals about God's character and what love looks like in practice. That'll take some discernment, thinking through what was specifically for them then, what's revealed that, has endure, uh, that endures. Third, prayerfully apply to our own hearts and lives today as Christians who are not bound by the letter of the law. It's not the only way, but it's one way that you might put this into practice. Understand the commandment in its original context, step one. Step two, discern what principles it reveals. And step three, prayerfully apply to our own hearts and lives. To show you what I mean, let's step through a worked example from the Ten Commandments uh, so you can see how this might play out. Let's go with the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Have a look in your Bibles uh, with me at Jeremy 5, verses 12 to 15. Jeremy 5, verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that even your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Step one, understand this in its original context. What is this law all about for them then? Well, it's important to know that the word uh, Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew simply means rest. So the Sabbath day is literally just, it's the rest day. And so if you meet a Jew on the Sabbath today, uh, it's polite to say Shabbat Shalom. It's a way of saying happy Sabbath or happy rest day. And verse 12 says that they would observe the Sabbath by doing what? By keeping it holy. Now to be holy means to be set apart. So they would have set this day apart as special, as different from the other six days of the week. How? Well, verse 13 tells them. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day, what makes it different, set apart, distinct? The seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, does anyone know what the first day of the week is? Sunday. Sunday. That's right. So fix it in your calendars. Uh, it gives you the option whether you have Monday or Sunday as the first day. You don't really have to fix it in your calendars if you don't want to. Uh, but Sunday is the first day of the week, and which means Saturday is the seventh. When god's people were to rest now notice in verse 14 who was it that was to rest just the wealthy just the household owners no it's all of israelite society isn't it it's rich and poor alike being able to rest together even their animals even the foreigners living in their towns they were able to have this rest together it's this beautiful picture and it might not seem like a big deal nowadays. So we've got weekends and public holidays and annual leave all built in. But back then, this was utterly unique. No other society in the ancient world had this. It's one of the blessings of the law, where God was creating this unique society that was meant to be so different from the nations around them. And the nations would look from the outside and look in and say, wow, you guys have got it so good. I want to find out who their God is. That's what we saw alluded to back in Deuteronomy 4. And notice that in verse 15, the Sabbath was not only for rest, but also for remembrance. Verse 15, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Because here's the thing. When they were slaves in Egypt, I can guarantee you that they were not getting one day off every week to rest. No, they were getting worked to death. But God graciously saved them. And in love, he's called them into a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant with himself. And the Sabbath, this weekly blessing of rest from their labor, was this weekly reminder of how good God is, of his love, and how they were to extend that same love to others By allowing even the foreigners among them to enjoy that same blessing of rest. So there's so much more that we could say. But that's step one. Understanding the commandment in its original context for Israel. So now step two. Discern what principles it reveals about God's character. And what love looks like in practice. Okay, so how does this show us what love looks like? Well, this has to be very brief, so I'm just going to shortcut it and give you two. Two principles, rest and remembrance. This shows us the value of rhythms of rest. that's good for us now, just as it was for them back then. And it shows us the value of rhythms of remembrance, of remembering all that God has done in love to save us. In our context, not from slavery in Egypt, but slavery from sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could unpack that a lot more with more nuance and time. You could do a whole talk on each commandment and we've got to do all 10 in one go. So let's press on to step three. Prayerfully apply to our own hearts and lives today as Christians not bound by the letter of the law. If you are a Christian, you are not under law. You are not bound to obey these commandments as law. This is where a lot of Christians in history have come unstuck. They haven't looked at how the Bible hangs together as one big picture. So they've looked at the fourth commandment. They said, oh, God's law seems important. It should still apply. Keep the Sabbath. Oh, Saturday, that seems weird. We do church on Sunday. So don't do any work on Sunday. It's a law that you have to keep. A lot of issues with that at different levels. Uh, But I think if we look at the principles that comes out from God's law, uh, there are ways that we can prayerfully apply those rhythms of rest and remembrance to ourselves. So it's worth asking you're not bound by this law you do not have to keep it if you want to work 24 7 7 days a week you are free in christ slug yourself to death but it's worth asking are there ways that i could be building in rhythms of rest and remembrance in my life your freedom in christ this could look a lot of different ways but what could it like look like for you Back when she was in uni, my wife was one of those high achievers. I know some of you here are in that category. Very studious and spending long hours in the library. Not during the week, but even on weekends too, she'd be um, cracking away at her uni work. She was a lot more studious than I was, as you might not be surprised to find out. But at one point she realised that uh, all this uni work was, was filling up her weekends and making it hard for her to spend time with other people. On Sundays she'd go to church, but afterwards she found out that she was Uh, finding it hard to spend time with people because it always felt like there was another assignment she could be working on. It always felt like there were more readings she could be doing. And so she decided to make Sunday a day of zero uni work, make it a hard rule for herself. Not because it was some binding law, but because she thought it would be wise and a good way for her to love God and others better. And she found it made a huge difference Instead of rushing off after church to hit the books, she was able to spend more time with others. And as soon as she put that restriction in place, she actually found it so freeing and life giving. And she kept it up for the rest of her uni life. Now, again, that's not to say that your rhythms of rest and remembrance should look exactly the same, but it's like to give you an idea of what it could look like. God didn't give his law because he's a fan of law keeping and rigid external obedience he gave it because he's a god of love and he wants to help us know what it looks like to love him and love others and as those who are free in christ the law when rightly understood is still a great blessing and a window that brings light and helps us know what that can look like we're going to explore that more over the coming weeks as we continue in Deuteronomy.